Good morning, Compass. It's good to see everybody here. Sermon on the Mount. We're continuing our series this morning. <clears throat> Last week, a change in the schedule was made. Megan came up to me and asked me if I'd be willing to speak, and she is so smooth. <laughs> oh, these verses, they're so great, because... But, but they are. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you that your word speaks for itself. So whatever I say or don't say up here isn't really going to matter as long as we are open to your Holy Spirit. So that's what I pray for this morning, that your Holy Spirit will speak in your name. Amen. <clears throat> I hope I'm not going to blow the mic by clearing my throat or coughing. <clears throat> Jeff has had to hear that quite a bit during the song service. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that has been said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, I think most of us are going to be okay today. This teaching seems safe enough. I haven't killed anyone. You probably haven't either. So we can just move along. Nothing to see here. But just to be safe, <clears throat> let's look back to where Jesus was referring. So let me quiz you. Which commandment talks about murder? Sixth commandment. I had to look it up too. I didn't remember. But the sixth commandment. It's found in Exodus 20, verse 13. <clears throat> I'm going to quote the King James Version because that's just frankly what is in my mind. <laughs> so Exodus 20, 13, it's one of those long verses. <clears throat> if it was your memory verse for the day, then you were probably said on Monday, thou shalt not kill. Period. End of story. So we're still good. Let's go eat. Now, before anybody gets up and leaves at that invitation, <clears throat> have you ever run across a situation that you were just happy to take at face value? Sounds good. I'm going to go with that. You really didn't want to dig any deeper because you might have been just a little afraid what you would find. So if I was making a point... And I don't have points today, but if I was, this would be point number one. Maybe you hold an opinion about some topic that you're just satisfied with your opinion. Maybe you could dig a little bit deeper. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> and this is not a rhetorical one. Seems like perhaps there's an obvious answer, but here it goes. What is wrong with murder? Now, I said it's not rhetorical. There's a lot wrong with it. What's wrong with it, TJ? Well, murder is ending somebody's life. We stand as a judge saying that they don't deserve to live. Okay. It's also where you're kind of, you're kind of like stealing. You're stealing everything. You're stealing their 
life, their hope, even their promise to God. Okay. Maybe their life wasn't worth a whole much. What's wrong with murder? Thank you. What's wrong with murder? Well, I'm no lawyer, but let's just stick with first-degree murder right now. <clears throat> I, don't want to get, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. I may never come back out. Let's just stick with first-degree murder right now. What's wrong with killing somebody? Yeah. Okay, thank you. But but just focusing on murder itself, Glenn has really bothered me. I should have asked your permission, Glenn, but this just came to me right now, so I didn't have any time to ask your permission for this before. <clears throat> I'm very grateful to Glenn because the job I have right now is largely to him. If you would have seen my resume, there was no reason for me to be hired for this job. But then Glenn retires, and he just leaves me. Now, murder could be a solution. <laughs> but I'm suspicious that I would not be the only one that thinks that Glenn's life has value. I think probably starting with his family. <laughs> Ashley's giving me the evil eye. Starting with his family and moving on from there. I think there's value in a person's life, no matter who they are. Now, evidently, this surface interpretation of the commandment, thou shalt not kill, and I think probably most of us would agree that murdering someone is not the right thing to do, at least. But the surface interpretation of the commandment that Jesus was addressing here, the surface understanding, was exactly what the teachers of the law had shared with the people. <clears throat> now, remember, if you were a common Israelite, you likely would not have known how to read yourself. You couldn't open up your Bible app and read the scripture. So you were taught, you received your understanding of scripture from what the teachers of the law shared. So let me ask another question, and this one is more rhetorical. Are you spending time in God's word yourself? Or are you just accepting what you have been told? Are you spending time in God's word yourself? Jesus had just finished saying, <clears throat> in fact, it was just back one verse in verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Evidently, there was something wrong with the Pharisees' understanding of righteousness. There must be something wrong with their interpretation of thou shalt not murder, the sixth commandment. Now, have you ever thought, that this Jesus, who is sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> quietly speaking to the people, is the same God who gave the Ten Commandments amid thunder and flames and that fury on the top of another mountain? Why so frightening and noisy then 
and so approachable and full of compassion now. How can this be the same God? But it is. I don't think this God has changed his mind or changed his character either. The Bible seems pretty clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Maybe the Israelites' life experience may not have provided them any framework for the difference between right and wrong. I don't know how much you've thought about what the culture was like where the Jews were living in Egypt, but just on the topic of murder, murder seemed to have been an acceptable solution to problems. And they may not have had any idea that the true God's character was different than the supposed God, Pharaoh, where they lived. After all, Pharaoh, if he was afraid that somebody might rise up and take his kingdom, his solution was, we'll murder all the male babies. Moses himself was rescued from that to only several years later, after he had been indoctrinated in the ways of Egypt, to decide perhaps that murder was a solution to his problem. When he saw an Egyptian beating up an Israelite, well, he solved it. He murdered the Egyptian. Evidently, Israel, degraded by their long bondage in Egypt, subject to a seemingly powerful Pharaoh, needed to be impressed with the power, majesty, and sincerity of the real God. But even back then, God tried to get them to understand his character. Remember how he explained to Moses what he was like when Moses said, can I just see your face? said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This God who thundered from Sinai is the same God who came to earth and lived among his creation to give us a living illustration of God's character, a character that was in perfect harmony with the law of God, the loving compassionate Jesus was fully in line with God's law. Now, before anybody gets upset about all this talk about law, let me remind you of Jesus' answer. When asked about the law by a lawyer, since we went down the path of lawyers this morning, the question was, what is the greatest commandment? God's answer was, love is the greatest commandment. Now, I paraphrased just a little there, but really just a little. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets can be summarized by this. Now, unfortunately, we can misunderstand what love is. But I want you to do this little thought experiment with me, so you don't have to answer out loud on this one either. Think about this scenario. What if everybody treated you like the Ten Commandments say we should treat others? Now imagine that for just a little bit. Nobody lied to you. Nobody murdered you. Nobody stole your stuff. I mean, just go down the list. What if everybody treated you like the Ten Commandments said we should behave? Wouldn't you love that? That'd be a little bit of heaven. In fact, if I can get the next slide here, Caleb, because I'll tell you what, Mark did something. I sent this to him, and he rearranged what I had written right up here just a little bit, and I liked what he said better, so I'm going to have to read it from up here. 
In fact, the very harmony and existence of heaven depends on everyone being transformed by the principles of God's law. If they wouldn't, it wouldn't be heaven if they aren't. Heaven doesn't exist unless we're changed into matching the character of God's law, his character. Too often we, like the Pharisees, feel that our outward conformity to the letter of the law is enough. Instead of surrendering our heart to the principle of love. So here Jesus is hoping to open the minds of his audience, and probably our minds as well, to the principles behind God's law. It isn't about outward performance. It's about a change of heart. In fact, that's what the new covenant is. Maybe you've heard of that phrase. Hebrews 10.16 talks about the new covenant. It's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31, and 33, where it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's not about what was written in granite. It's about what becomes ingrained in our lives. As Jesus continues to explain, it should become obvious to us, like it must have been to his audience there on that mountain, that living a life of love will require us to have a new heart because our natural heart doesn't behave that way. So what does Jesus say to help illustrate thou shalt not murder? It's a little bit deeper than the surface. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, just to clear up a few things, because I doubt you have had somebody refer to you or you have used the word Raka recently. Raka was an Aramaic term of abuse that puts someone down, insulting their intelligence. Calling someone a fool was used to designate an apostate or someone who had abandoned himself to wickedness. Essentially, and this is where maybe you and I get a little uncomfortable, essentially, these were just different ways of putting someone down, insulting them, or perhaps making fun of them. So what is Jesus driving at? I think he's driving at the value of human life. It's important how we treat people. Verse 23, therefore, if you are suffering, offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> Sounds like the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Then Jesus is very practical, I think, here. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary and those lawyers may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now at this point, we all may be feeling just a little bit inadequate 
maybe discouraged. How can I live up to that? Murder was good. I'm good there. But what about the principle that's behind it? Well, I have good news for us. In fact, that's why it's called the gospel. Not only did Jesus die to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's purpose is not merely to deliver us from the suffering that is the inevitable result of sin, but to save us from sin itself. Now, there's no question if I decide by my own will that I'm going to try to follow the surface of the Ten Commandments. I don't murder. I do my best not to lie. I don't steal from people. There's no question that just that surface following of the Ten Commandments would keep me from a lot of inevitable results that I won't have to suffer. But Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about giving us a new life. The gospel is more than forgiveness. It's also God's promise to give us a new heart. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Developing the character of God is impossible on our own, but we are not on our own. I want to encourage you to spend time daily with God. It's only by daily surrendering my will to God that he can change my heart. Now that phrase, surrender your will to God, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that before. What does that mean? I mean, in practicality, what does that mean? Surrendering your will. It's a question that I often had. I knew I wanted to do it, but how did I do it? Then one morning, as I was reading, I ran across, to me, what has been the best explanation of, in practicality, how do I surrender my will to God? Now, there's a preacher that many of us are familiar with who often says this phrase, but that's a sermon for another day. It is a sermon for another day, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. You can read it yourself. It's found in the book, Steps to Christ. Starts on page 69. Think it may be the second paragraph. I forgot to double check this morning. But if you read in the book, Steps to Christ, from page 69 to the end of the chapter, for me, that was a beautiful explanation. I understood it for the first time. What does it mean to surrender my will to God? Now, surrendering your will might sound scary. I might feel like I'm surrendering something to God. That means I'm going to miss out on something in life. We may exist separated from God, but God doesn't want us to just exist. And Caleb, there may be a slide to this effect back there. He wants us to live. Don't believe Satan's lies. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. John 10.10. 10. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been prompting you recently that you need to fully surrender. There's no better time than today. Lord, that's exactly what we need is we need you. 
We need you each day, and I pray that I will, and that everybody here will, take the time daily just to commune with you, just to be with you, because it's only through that connection of our own that our hearts are changed, and our characters are changed, and we can enjoy heaven and eternity with you in that world without sin. You've promised us two things, to forgive our sins and to free us. Thank you for that. Bless us all here and help us to be listening to your Holy Spirit this week and to respond. In your name, amen.